0: Good morning, my name is Kevin Maurice, I'm the youth pastor here at Grace, and for the past two weeks, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And We've talked about this sermon as a king speaking about, teaching about his kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is near, and it's a kingdom that exists both here and now, and that will only be complete in the future. It's an entirely different realm of life and reality, and it's a completely different kind of kingdom because Jesus is an entirely different kind of king. And, and so this morning, I think it'd be helpful for us to pause for a moment and try to put ourselves into the mindset of the original listeners, the original audience of this sermon. They're on this mountainside. And Jesus is proclaiming this vision of life, and somewhere in their brains, in their hearts, there's this conflict because there's this competing ideal that they've been taught that's been hammered into them since they were children. This was a Jewish audience to whom Jesus was preaching, and from the time they were toddlers, their parents had told them the most important thing in all of life was the law. It was God's law, the word of God. So rabbis and and Pharisees and teachers had brought them up with this great respect for and, and reverence of the law, the commandments. And to this Jewish audience, the most significant thing about the kingdom of God was the law because it taught you how to get into the kingdom. And many, if not most of the people there on that mountainside, they were illiterate. Okay, they couldn't read, but they knew They knew the Scriptures. They could recite the books of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by heart. They could recite and, and sing the Psalms. They knew the Ten Commandments front and back. This was an audience who believed to their core, in their bones, the most precious, important thing in life was God's Word, His commands to His people, the law, and, and so they're sitting there and they're captivated by, by this teacher and, and his vision of a kingdom and, and Jesus is preaching and there's these questions that are arising. Like what, is, what does what Jesus have to say, what does this have to do with everything I've known, everything I've ever believed? What does your teaching, Jesus, have to do with the Torah and the Ten Commandments and all of our religious tradition? Jewish law was comprehensive. The Ten Commandments, just as a start, tell us a lot of what life should be. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Is Jesus throwing all of that stuff out? Is his kingdom so vastly different that that none of this other stuff matters? And as Christians, those are good questions for us to ask as well. What do we do with the Scriptures? What do we do with the Old Testament? and all of the stuff before Jesus in the Bible. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus helped us. He says, here is how you should think about the Hebrew scriptures. Here is what you need to know about the law. And so let's open our Bibles together to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna cover the rest of this chapter. We're gonna use verses 17 through 20 as our our launch point. So starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches his disciples, he teaches us the true meaning of the law. He shows us the purpose of the law, he reveals the impossibility of the law, and then finally he shows himself to be the fulfillment of the law. The purpose, the impossibility, and the fulfillment of the law. So let's start with the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of, of any law? It tells us here's what you must do. That's the purpose of law. Even today, it tells you what life in a kingdom or in a nation is meant to look like. That's how laws are supposed to work. If they're just and right, and if everyone follows the law perfectly, then life should be perfect. In verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law that Jesus is referring to is the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, that includes the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And so anytime you see law and prophets in the Bible, think Old Testament. For Jesus and his audience, the religious, the moral system of the law was clearly outlined, it was defined by what we call the Old Testament. To them, it was just the Testament, it was their Bible. And Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish that. I haven't come to to do away with that. That word abolish, it was used most often with the demolition or leveling of a structure or of a house. Jesus says, I'm not abolishing it. I'm not knocking down what's already here. And so our first relevant truth this morning is that as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we don't ignore or relegate or throw out the Old Testament. They are holy scriptures. The Old Testament law wasn't just the best that God could come up with until Jesus was ready. It it wasn't plan B until God came up with a better plan A and decided to send Jesus. This is actually an, an ancient heresy called Marcionism that taught that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than that of the New Testament. And so when Jesus came and died for us, He was combating, fighting, doing away with this God of the Old Testament. And so now we should just throw it all out. And right here in one sentence, Jesus obliterates that argument. Jesus was always plan A. And in his sovereign plan, it included the Old Testament and the law. He didn't come to destroy it. And so by saying what he does here, Jesus does two things. He affirms and he elevates the Old Testament. He says, what you have in your Bibles, it is good, it's right, it is my word. And then secondly, he goes a step further and he says, ultimately, what he came to do was fulfill the Old Testament in himself. He's about to show us how. And so as followers of Jesus, as we seek to know him better and know him more and know him more fully, Yes, we should study his words, and we should read the Gospels, and we should look at Jesus. And we should study the law, and the prophets, and the Old Testament. And as Christians, we should have a deep understanding, and appreciation, and love for, and depth of knowledge about the Old Testament, because they show us, and they point us to Christ. Now, in the rest of Matthew 5, Jesus gives different examples from the law to show us its purpose. We're going to briefly look at three together today. And with each one, he shows us both the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. He's going to use this pattern. He says, you've heard that it was said, meaning this is what you've been taught. This is what the Old Testament teaches you. This is the commandment. And then he follows it up each time with, but I say to you, I tell you. And by doing this, Jesus declares himself as the authority over the law. He's saying, I'm the king who wrote those laws, and so I'm telling you what they mean. You've heard that it was said, that's the law, but I tell you, Jesus illuminates the law. He starts with the sixth commandment, you must not murder. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The letter of the law, don't murder people. It's a good law. And then Jesus goes beyond it and says, I'm telling you, the spirit behind that law, don't even be that angry. Jesus is referring to a specific type of anger. He uses this term raka to talk about anger and murder. It's an Aramaic word. It's, it's difficult to translate into English, which is why many of our Bibles just leaves it in Aramaic. The best translations for raka are empty or void or nothingness. And so to say raka to someone is to say you are nothing. You're not just nothing to me, you're a void, you're a black hole on this planet. And Jesus says that that type of attitude toward another human soul, this extreme resentment of another individual that would lead you to calling them nothing, that's a heart condition. That's a state of your soul that would enable you to look at another human life and, and to take it. He says anger is the foundation that murder is built on. The next example Jesus uses is of adultery, seventh commandment. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so letter of the law, you must not commit adultery. Don't cheat on your spouse. Spirit of the law, your heart and your body are interconnected. Adultery doesn't just happen with your body, so guard your heart also. Guard it first even. It it all starts with a look, and so what if you, you didn't even look? The desire to seek out visual gratification, it signifies a spiritual condition, a state of your heart, which would enable adultery. Lust is the soil that adultery grows in. The last example... Jesus finishes his survey of the law by telling us how to treat our enemies. He says, You've heard that it was said, love your enemy, excuse me, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The law is this love your friends, hate your enemies. But Jesus asks, Do you want to be children of God? You want to be in his kingdom? Children of God, the last time Jesus used that phrase, it was in the Beatitudes. And Jesus said that it's the peacemakers who are called children of God. And here he says, here's what peacemakers, here's what children of God do. They love their enemies. Not just don't hate them, love them. And and then go further than that. Pray for them. Don't ignore them or just leave them be pray for them. Jesus takes us back to the Ten Commandments, and he walks us through the Old Testament law and the prophets, and he shows us the purpose of the law. He says, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. And it's not just about obedience to the letter of the law, it penetrates to the spirit and the heart of the law in each and every person. And then he goes a step beyond this. He drives the point home and he finishes this summary of the law with this striking statement. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The religious leaders, the people of Jesus' day, many of them probably on this mountainside in the crowd, they had this belief that if everyone in Israel could keep God's law perfectly, God's kingdom would come to earth. No more Roman Empire, God's people would have their own kingdom again. Some of the Jewish believers, uh, leaders actually believed that if everyone in Israel could keep the Sabbath day holy for just one Sabbath, that would be all it would take, and God would bring his kingdom to earth. And the fact that it hadn't happened yet meant that somebody out there wasn't pulling their weight. If only Kevin would stop bearing false witness, kingdom of heaven would be here by now perfect obedience to the law. That's what they were aiming for, because that's what they believed would bring forth God's kingdom. But what Jesus does for his audience and for us is to proclaim that's not a, that's not a possibility. Perfect obedience to the law is not possible, because even if, even if you were arrogant enough to think that you could obey fully the letter of the law, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, check, 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 Jesus just revealed that what he's after is something much deeper. It's the heart. It's the spirit of the law. And and so, what he's done by teaching us the purpose of the law is he exposes us to the impossibility of the law. It's impossible to keep. We are not up to the task. None of us can do all of these things that Jesus commanded. We've all been… Angry, we we live in environments of, of lust. We've exacted retribution, we've hated our enemies. The law of Jesus' kingdom is impossible to keep. But he, but he already told us that perfectly keeping the law, perfect righteousness, that's how we get into the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus said this at the beginning of the passage: I tell you the truth unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There was an old Jewish saying that if God was only going to allow two people into heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. And Jesus tells us, your right living, your obedience to the law, not just the letter of it, but the spirit of it that I've just defined for you, It has to exceed, it has to go further than the most religious people you can imagine. He starts there and then he finishes by saying, and be perfect, just as God is perfect. Be perfect. 30 years ago, Virginia Owens was a literature professor at Texas A&M University and she assigned her class an assignment Read the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Read the Sermon on the Mount, and then write a paper responding to the Sermon on the Mount. When she received those essays back, she was surprised by what many of those students wrote. So here are just a few. There's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount, it was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry is like murder. These are the most extreme, stupid, inhuman statements I have ever heard. Listen, if that's what students at a and were saying in the 90s, can you imagine what some students down the road at another large university <laughs> would be writing today? Professor Owens later said this, describing this exercise with her students. Biblical illiteracy has come to the point so people can hear and read the Sermon on the Mount without filtering it through 2,000 years of cultural haze. Honest, ignorant ears can hear it as it is, and the Sermon on the Mount is terrifying. Jesus' sermon is not just this series of nice, kind, moral, pithy, fortune cookie sayings. The Sermon on the Mount is challenging. Jesus' words are razor sharp. There's nothing soft about it. His words are terrifying. And, And they're meant to be. The purpose of the law is to show us it's impossible to keep the law. Jesus intends for his audience. He wants his audience to be stunned here because he's asking too much. He's setting the bar far too high. C.S. Lewis summarized it this way, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a person who can read the Sermon on the Mount with tranquil pleasure. We're not meant to hear Jesus' words and say, how quaint and nice. I'll just embroider some of those verses on a pillow and then be about my day we cannot read or hear Jesus' sermon and walk away thinking, yeah, I I got that. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom manifesto and it calls his followers to a very different kind of life. And the only response that that a disciple of Jesus can have is to say, I can't do that. It's impossible. And when we reach this point, of saying, so what hope do I have to exceed the righteousness of the law? What hope do I have to be perfect like God is perfect? That is when Jesus says, good, you are in the right place. You're right where I need you to be because I'm the hope that you have. The purpose of the law is to bring us face-to-face with and to confront the impossibility of keeping the law. We can never achieve that level of righteousness. And Jesus steps into the world and says, I can, but I can. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. He's the fulfillment of it. So how do you fulfill a law? How do you satisfy a law? A law. There are two ways. Two ways to fulfill a law. One is to obey the law. You, you follow it, you obey it, you don't break the law, you fulfilled it. The other is to pay the penalty of the law. You satisfy the law by paying the price for breaking it, right? This is true in sports. In football, you must not jump off sides. That's the rule. If you obey it, good, play on. If you break the rule, you pay the penalty, the defense pays, offense gets five yards, and then you play on. This is true with traffic laws. You stop at a stop sign. If you stop, you've obeyed the law, you keep driving. If you run through the stop sign, you get pulled over, you get a ticket, you pay the penalty, but then you keep driving. It's certainly better to obey the law, right? especially in some sports, basketball, soccer, penalties can add up, you can be ejected. Breaking certain road laws, it'll stay on your record. You might lose certain privileges, but if you do break the law by paying the penalty, the immediate punishment is removed. Two ways to fulfill a law, one is to obey, the other is to pay the price. In either case though, if you do that, The law has no claim on you. It's not condemning you. It's not over you. You've fulfilled it. And this is also how God's law works, albeit more perfectly than human laws or or rules in sports. Throughout the Old Testament, the point of the law was to obey it. Obey the law. Obey God's word. If you don't, if you sin, then you pay the penalty, And, and the penalty, the price of sin, was this system of sacrifice and atonement. An animal had to die in place of a person to pay for their sin, for that broken law. The Jewish people even had a specific day set aside for atonement to make sacrifice on behalf of the entire community so that in case they missed one, they would make sure the penalty was paid for every last sin from that last year. Jesus says he did not come to abolish that law or that system. He came to fulfill it, to satisfy it. And the incredible thing about Jesus is that he does that for us twice. Jesus fulfills the law for us by both, not either or, but by both obeying it and by paying the penalty on our behalf. He obeyed the law. He fulfilled it by never breaking it. He he lived a life that was completely righteous, exceedingly righteous. He never murdered, he never harbored that anger or that resentment, never committed adultery or lust. He, He turned the other cheek. He obeyed the law, not just the letter of it, but to the heart, the spirit of it. He obeyed perfectly. And then he paid the penalty he paid the price of the law. He was our sacrifice for us. He says, you can't be perfect, so I'll be perfect for you. You can't be perfect, so I'll pay the price for you. And, and look, you can see at how Jesus did this, and we'll just use one of the examples that he did. There's a reason that Jesus finished his teaching on this section about the law by talking about loving your enemies and children of God and, and being perfect because it reveals to us how he fulfills the law. You can see it in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your father who is in heaven. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus came to the world because he loves his enemies. He loved us. And then on the cross, he prayed for his enemies. And and before we reduce this word enemies to Judas who betrayed him, or to the religious leaders who, who condemned him, or to Pilate who authorized his execution, or to the Roman soldiers who drove the nails through his hands, we must remember that because of our sin, we, you and I, were enemies of God. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. Romans chapter 5 says, For if while we were enemies, we were enemies. We were God's enemies. But if we keep reading, we see why we are no longer. If, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? We were his enemies and he prayed for us. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We were his enemies and he loved us enough to die for us. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. In Central Africa, there's a group of people called the Ku tribe. And they have a very distinct law about justice and murder. If a man kills someone, regardless of the cause or the circumstance, he broke the law, and so he's condemned to death. The guilty man is taken out in a boat to the middle of a lake, and his hands are bound behind his back, his legs are tied together, and the entire tribe gathers around the perimeter of the lake, and they watch in silence as the murdered person's family takes their position on the shoreline. And with everybody in place, the bound man, the guilty man, is thrown into the water. And at that moment, the victim's family has a choice to make. One of three choices. One, they can watch as the guilty man drowns, but they have to watch as he sinks below the water never to be seen again. Two. They can choose to swim out to the middle of the lake. They can rescue him. They can drag him back to the shore. They can cut the ropes off of him and then they can turn their backs on him and leave him dripping wet. And they and the rest of the village, they go back and if that man ever steps foot into the village again, he's to be murdered. He's to be killed without recourse. So he's been banished, he's been set free to leave and never be seen again. Or three, the family can jump into the water, they can swim out to him, they can save this man, they bring him back to the shore, they cut his ropes and then they lead him back into the village and they bring him into their home, they dry him off and they clothe him and they feed him and they invite him to live with them as part of their family, as a new son. The law says it is their choice and their choice alone to let the man die, to show him mercy and banishment, or to show grace. If they let him die, the law has been satisfied. That was the law. If they rescue him, if they banish him, he's been shown great mercy but he still lives under the law, under the guilt of it. If he ever shows his face again, he'll be killed. But if the family chooses to bring him in as a son, that's incredible grace. The law condemns him no more, it's been fulfilled. The Sermon on the Mount makes a case against us. We are God's enemies we're murderers, we're adulterers, because we haven't obeyed the law perfectly, the law of his kingdom, we're sentenced to pay a price. We're the ones in the boat. And Jesus does two things for us. First, he takes our place in the boat. He switches places with us in the middle of the lake. He takes our punishment for us, and he's drowned in our sin. And second... He's the one who swam out into the lake and he rescues us and he saves us and he brings us back to the shore and he dries us off. And then as someone who obeyed the law perfectly with perfect righteousness, he clothes us with his righteousness. Jesus does both for us. He obeys the law and he pays the price. He fulfilled it for us so now we can live new and different changed lives with him and like him in his kingdom as children of God. That's who we are now, and and we get to live like it. So how do we do this? How do we live into this truth and and live out the law of the kingdom like Jesus talks about? Not not under compulsion as, as how we get into the kingdom, but knowing that we're part of the kingdom living out the law because that's who we are. It's no coincidence that Jesus begins and ends his discussion of the law by talking about anger and murder and then hating your enemies. Because of what Christ has done for us, could we look at, could we think about people differently? Because we're children of the kingdom, could we love others like Jesus does? And so the people who despise us, or, or maybe the people that we despise, the people who have done us wrong, the people who have been vindictive toward us or make life hard for us, maybe the people that we can't stand to hear their name or, or look at or hear from, the people that we might not go as far as to say it, but in, in our souls and our minds, we know we would call them our enemies. What if instead of allowing anger to turn to resentment, to turn into hate, what if we were people who said, I'll just pray? I'm going to pray for that person, for that group of people. I'm going to desire the best for them. I'm choosing to not hate them. I'm not going to keep talking about them. I'm not going to continue to fantasize about their downfall or, or them getting their comeuppance. I'll just pray. And they might not deserve it, but neither did I. I was God's enemy, and he loved me. He prayed for me. He died for me. And and now that I'm in his kingdom, out of love for my king, if nothing else, I'll do the same for others. And and so when you get that email this week, or, or that thought creeps back into your head of what they did to you, or someone reminds you of how much you dislike that person and that temptation to hate presents itself, could you live by the law of Jesus' kingdom and say, I'll pray for them? God, would you do for them what you've done for me? If they don't know you, God, would you draw them to yourself? Or, Or just be honest. God loves honest prayer what if you just said, God, I don't like them. I don't. But you love them. You love them enough to die for them. And so I love them too. And I'll pray for them. Amen. He's just left it at that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44. That is a great verse to memorize because we remember that this is what Jesus did for us. And so now we can do it for others. That's the only way we can do it for others. This is what his kingdom looks like. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And if Jesus is our king, we get to live out his laws. And it'll change everything about us. Our lives will begin to look more and more different because of him. And and they're different lives because it's a different kind of kingdom. Because Jesus is a different kind of king. So let's follow him together. Would you please pray with me? God, we come before you and... And we're humbled by who you are and and what you've done for us. God, help us to not lose sight of that, to not become numb to it. God, help us to continually be reminded that you chose to love us, you chose to die for us. We didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it. You chose to do that. And God, help us to be a people, a church that is so saturated by that truth that it would overflow from our lives into our neighborhoods and community, that we would be people that would love. We'd love others the way that you've loved us, God. We pray that you would help us to know that, help us to do that this week. Help us to be children of the King who live like we're in the kingdom. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.